0: A Podcast One production. Flip a coin and watch it land. It'll either be heads or tails. Flip it again, same thing. And again, and again, and again. It's something we know about how the world works. It's because we know that's the way the world works that we've built it into our computers. Now, 160 years ago, a man named George Boole came up with the mathematics that underlie these coin flips the situations where you get one of two outcomes, heads or tails, true or false. It's binary math. Our entire world of logic and computers rests on that mathematical foundation. But what if it's all wrong? What if it's neither heads nor tails, neither true nor false? G'day I'm Mark Pesci, the Coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to quantum computing pioneers, Claire Edmonds and Virginia Frey. Their research on the cutting edge of logic and truth reveals a world where true and false coexist simultaneously, where things can be both true and false. The deeper you go, the weirder it gets on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. There's a wonderful quote.
1: The universe is not only stranger than we think. It may be stranger than we can think.
0: It's such a wonderful quote that a casual Google shows it's been attributed to at least three eminent scientists. So who really said it? Well, it depends on which article you read. The Goodreads website attributes the quote to Werner Heisenberg. Wiki quote attributes it to J.B.S. Haldane. And not to be overruled by itself, WikiQuote also attributes it to Sir Arthur Eddington. So who can you believe? All of them might have said it. Maybe none of them. Maybe it's just the kind of quote that sticks to a certain kind of physicist. It certainly seems to depend on where you make your measurement. And that's really rather ironic because this quote, whoever said it, is really about measurement. We can poke and prod at the universe any way we like, but after a certain point, our results become the product of our experiments rather than a reflection of the universe. And at that level, the universe is a product of the way we measure the universe. A hundred years ago, that scientific insight broke the best minds in physics. Most famously, Albert Einstein developed thought experiments to contradict this hypothesis, but only ended up proving that the universe was in the end weirder than even Einstein could think. And although this universe, the quantum universe, may be unceasingly weird, it's also incredibly useful. We all benefit from the quantum universe because the transistor is a quantum device built from the basic physics of the quantum universe. And so while we may not understand the why of it, you're listening to me right now because we do understand the how of quantum physics. And we built an entire civilization on top of it. And we're just getting started. Over the last billion seconds, scientists have been learning how to use the weird qualities of the quantum world to construct a computer unlike any that's ever existed. The results of programs that run on such a quantum computer, well, you might say they're weirder than we can think. Now, to help us through this strange landscape, we're speaking with two scientists at the forefront of quantum computing— Claire Edmonds and Virginia Frey are researchers within the University of Sydney's quantum control laboratory, where they work to harness the quantum world, which is not as easy as you might think. Claire, Virginia, welcome to The Next Billion Seconds. Thanks,
2: Mark. Thanks, Mark. Okay, so, Claire,
0: what is it about measuring the world that gets so weird at the quantum level?
1: In the classical level, everything's fixed.
0: So that's the world that you and this I would the normally that- experiment.
1: This is the world that we see around us all the time. It's the world that we've grown up with. And even everyone in this world who is not a physicist is very comfortable with classical physics because it's what we feel, it's what we see, it's what we know. And as you said, if we flip a coin and we measure it, it's going to be heads or tails. And if we measure it and look again, it's still heads. And we have this sort of, whilst the actual action of flipping it is probabilistic, it's always going to be one or the other. Now, the quantum world is very strange. It's, as you said, stranger than we can think because not only can this coin be heads or tails, but it can also be some strange mixture of the two, some superposition, as we like to call it, which is simultaneously being in two states at once, both heads and tails. Now, the funny thing about the quantum world is that when we look, when we measure, it collapses into one of those. We only see, we can only ever measure heads or tails. But before we look, it's in both of these states simultaneously.
0: So it's kind of like if we're not peeking at it, then it's yes and no. As soon as we peek at it, it's like, oh, no, I'm no, or oh, no, I'm yes. Absolutely. All right, so there is something very odd going on here. And so we have this idea that when we're not peeking at something in the quantum world, Virginia, then it can exist in what we call this superposition, this magical state. Does that mean that the whole universe that we're not looking at right now is just kind of basically like,
2: oh, I don't know, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm that? So the size scales over which quantum phenomena occur are much, much smaller than everything we're exposed to um, in the classical world. We're talking um, sizes of molecular sizes or the sizes of viruses, um, these sort of scales.
0: Okay, so we, but what we see is that there's this kind of gray zone. We have this super small world where things can exist in what we call these superpositions, where they can be both true and false, one or the other. And then we have the world that we live in, what we call the classical world, really, well, relatively really big stuff. and And... We're quite grounded. We know that we're one thing or the other thing. And there is this gray zone. And I I know that as the research has been going on, bigger and bigger things have been squeezing into the gray zone. It used to be a single atom. And now we can get a whole virus in there and, you know, we'll sort of see where things are going. All right. What is that quality that things have at that small scale that allows them to be in this superposition, Claire?
1: The, the ability to remain in this quantum state, to have these strange quantum properties, it all comes back to measurement again, because when you measure, we lose the quantumness. We see only one thing. And that means that in order to keep its quantumness, it can't be measured. And, to and it doesn't it.
0: just mean being measured by us. It could be measured by a light ray coming through the room or a cosmic ray coming out of space. Or... Exactly.
1: This is why we don't see quantumness on big scales because the second it interacts with anything, it's being measured in some way or shape or form. So we need to keep our quantum systems very isolated and very cold and very small.
0: Okay, so this is a really good way of, of thinking of it. If it is big enough to sort of, act in interact with something if it's big enough to do that mm-hmm. then it's going to lose its sort of nice superpositions quantumness so this is what you two actually do in the lab virginia right you actually create these spaces that are so cold and so i guess pure that you can take these very th- uh, do you work with atoms or molecules you work with atoms right
2: yes yeah, so we work with individual atoms
0: <laughs> individual ind- like a single atom
2: single atom
0: and, and you put them in these very cold, very pure... How do you manage to catch a single atom and put it into a single place?
2: So, um, we need to prepare a very isolated environment for the single atoms so that they don't interact with the environment so that we can keep their quantumness. And the way we do that is we um, use charges. So, we actually we ionize the atoms. Okay, such, so
0: basically you send an electrical charge in.
2: That's right. And then we have electrical and magnetical fields which allow us to trap the atoms.
0: Okay, so you can think of it when you have magnets, magnets will repel and attract each other and you can make you can give the atom a charge and because of that it can sit between a magnet.
2: Yes, or to be more formally correct, electromagnetic fields. But yes, <laughs> the I- the idea, the idea is correct.
0: Okay. All right. So you can do that down to the scale of a single atom. And because it's a single atom and it's not touching anything else, it can maintain. And I know that the term, and we'll throw this term in, it's called coherence, right? It can maintain its quantumness, right? Where it can be in all of these different states. Okay. Now that you have that atom in its beautiful quantumness, and it's pure, you can actually start to do things with it, Claire, right? You can start to use it. And, And talk about that.
1: So at the level we're at at the moment, in the world, people are looking at maybe one or two and up to about 30 or 50, depending on who you ask, little quantum particles. And depending on how many you have, it says what you can do with them. At the moment, on the level of individual atoms, we're really in our development stage. We're back in the 1930s, 1940s, developing quantum, developing the equivalent of a classical computer, but now a quantum computer. And we're trying to build up all the tools we're going to need. So just like in a classical computer, you have what we call logic gates. These are where we take two different classical bits and we compare them and we can do AND gates or or gates, and these really form the basis of of classical computation. So
0: we're talking about being able to take signals on a, a classical computer, the kind that you have in your smartphone, and it's true and false, and then mixing those signals. And you mix true and false, you mix these signals through what we call gates, which brings them together and either adds them up or subtracts them from one another, all of that stuff, and you can get a computer program out of that. So I can see how that works with what we think of as a transistor or even a vacuum tube back in the 1940s, if you're talking about it. How can you take this atom that you have in this perfect little quantum state and turn that into the equivalent of a bit of logic?
1: So we need some way to manipulate our atom. And in the field, this is usually done using microwaves, like just some sort of microwave pulse Mm -hmm. or a laser. Literally a beam of light coming in, which we tuned the perfect frequency and the perfect strength and time to swap that that quantum bit, maybe from a zero to a one or into one of these strange superposition states.
0: Okay, so Virginia, you can think of it then as rather than having uh, an electrical signal which would be coming in if I had a computer chip with, you know, it would be a, a voltage if it were a one and it would be no voltage if it were a zero, then you can think of it as I'm shining a light ray in if I want this, this little quantum thing to be a one or no light ray if I want it to be a zero. Is that roughly correct?
2: Yes, that's, that's very correct, actually. Uh, and if you if you don't shine it in for the exact right time, then you don't have to go all the way from zero to one. You can also just stop in the middle and build a superposition state.
0: So, so you've given it just enough to go, oh, maybe.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay.
0: All right. Now you have this single little quantum thing with a maybe. And now, Claire, you're saying you can actually take several of these maybes and put them together. Why am I going to want to put several of these maybes together?
1: Well, because in a classical computer, a classical computer with a single bit is not going to do very much at all. (laughs) That's a coin, really. So the more and more quantum bits we throw into our quantum computer, the more powerful our algorithms are, the more powerful our computation is. And there's another very interesting thing which we get the second we introduce our second quantum bit, and that's another quantum property called entanglement. This is the idea that two completely separate particles, like atoms, can be intrinsically linked. Their strange quantumness can talk to each other, and no matter how far you move them apart from each other, they can affect each other.
0: So I can have one of these weird little quantum thingies on one side of the universe and another one on the other side of the universe. And I can shine my laser beam over here at this one that's over on this side of the universe. And it will be reflected in what's happening in the atom on the other side of the universe.
1: Exactly that.
0: That's weird.
1: It's weird. It's weirder than we can think. It's, this is what Einstein, in fact, this is one of the issues that Einstein had with quantum physics this spooky action at a distance. He because called it, it happens
0: faster than the speed yeah. of light, right? So which blows Einstein and this is I think probably why he had a problem, because everything in Einstein is bounded by the fact that things can only move at the speed of light.
1: Mm.
0: Okay, we're getting weird here. <laughs> we have let's say just the first two of these. So we've got two of these these quantum and I guess we can now start to call them quantum bits or qubits is what you folks call yeah, them, right? Yeah, qubits. So we'll not call them qubits. So we have these two quantum qubits and we've entangled them. So they have this this weird quality with respect to one another. At some point, this gets too hard for us, right? Like we can make one qubit. And you can do that in a lab and you can work on it and maybe two or three and does it then for every qubit that you're trying to sort of attach to this string of pearls I guess does it get progressively harder to put another one claire on this string
1: definitely there's a word that you mentioned very briefly earlier which was coherence yes and in our world that's all about how long we can keep information around for because each of these these quantum bits these qubits is storing information and its coherence is telling us how long that information stays there before it's just lost, it's jumbled away, and we lose whatever we're trying to do. And there's several reasons it can happen. It can happen because our system isn't fully isolated. There's something coming in from the outside world which messes it up.
0: Heat, for example. Exactly, magnetic
1: fields which just permeate through our system. And every time you add in another quantum bit, another qubit, not only does your architecture have to get harder, you've got to deal with another one, but also it's more just more likely- chance,
0: right? Yeah. Oh, so of course you're basically building a machine that's more and more complex, and so there's just more things that can go wrong. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, and that and that's not weird. Everyone's used to something mm. like that. All right. So when we're talking about this quality of coherence, and you need that in order to be able to make these bits do your bidding, Virginia, how long can you keep that qubit coherent?
2: So, our experiment is um, maybe a bit different to most of the um, quantum computing implementations that exist so far, um, because we use trapped ions, and trapped ions are actually coherent for a very long time. In our lab, we certainly have coherence times of several minutes.
0: Mm. Okay, that's really good. All right, so that's but that's now a single bit. So, clear. If we go up to something that maybe has four bits, eight bits, eight, ten qubits, now what starts happening to that period of time?
1: That's a very interesting question because, in fact, in another trapped ion system where people are looking at entangling strings of maybe eight qubits or ten qubits, what they're finding is that their coherence time—how long that that information they're preparing stays around is less than the time that it takes to do the gate, less than the time that it takes to actually entangle them. So by the time they're fully entangled, they've already lost some of the information.
0: So your computer is self-destructing faster than you're building it.
1: (laughs) And now we're talking on the order of hundreds of microseconds.
0: Right, so hundreds of millions of a second. You have to assemble your computer, you have to tell your computer what it's going to do, and you have to hope the computer does not blow up. Yep. (laughs) We're talking to Claire Edmonds and Virginia Frey. In the next billion seconds, we will be right back and talk about maybe what we can do about that. And we're back speaking with Virginia Frey and Claire Edmonds. Virginia. Is there a quote from Richard Feynman, who's a very famous physicist, who might help us sort of deal with the fact that we feel like we're a little bit at sea with all of this?
2: So Richard Feynman uh, once said that those who believe that they understood quantum mechanics haven't understood quantum mechanics. And this is... There's something intrinsically weird about the quantum nature of things that is just beyond our grasp.
0: And this is from a man who won the Nobel Prize in physics and so speaks somewhat authoritatively perhaps about the fact that, yeah, we can work with this. But if you're sitting here listening to the show going, I don't get it, this is okay. All right. What we're doing is we're taking you through a tour of how we're actually working with things that we don't understand and yet can still work with. Because that's how it is with the quantum world. All right. So we now have this world where we're assembling these qubits and they're trying to self-destruct as quickly as we assemble them. And I know because we've been working on quantum computing for a billion seconds, for about 30 years, that there's been not not so much a wall, but it's been difficult for us to get longer and longer and longer strings of qubits. Now, Claire, as we get these longer strings, does this mean that we have the capacity to write, I guess, more sophisticated programs?
1: If the longer strings are performing well? and behaving as well as a single qubit does at the moment, then absolutely. We have some great sort of programs which we want to try as we get to bigger and bigger strings. And in fact, something we're hoping to see maybe in the next five to ten years, depending on who you ask, or even less, is really doing something on a quantum computer that a classical computer cannot do.
0: What might that be? Give me an example.
1: So... The, alg- the one which is thrown around a lot is something called um, Shor's Factoring Algorithm, and this is the big concern for crypt- um, cryptography and RSA encryption. So Shor's
0: Factoring Algorithm basically says, here's a great big number I'm going to give you. I want to know the numbers that divide into it with no remainder, right?
1: Yes, and this is what forms the basis of a lot of encryption in, in, co- in computation, but Whilst that's been demonstrated at the moment on very small numbers, like 15. So can (laughs) you factorize 15? Yeah, Yes,
0: like five and three. (laughs) Well done, yes. Great, thank you.
1: A classical computer can also do that. (laughs) That's very good. (laughs) So in order to really get to that number, which a classical computer can't do in less than hundreds or thousands of years, we're going to need a lot more qubits. We're talking like millions of qubits. So this is not a short-term goal. And we also need these qubits to be really, really good.
0: Really, really good in the sense of being really reliable.
1: Really reliable, long coherence times. And also we need to make sure that all of our little gates, all of our operations that we're doing to these qubits are also really good. And whilst for a single qubit that might be the case, it gets complicated when you get to longer and longer strings and bigger gates, like entangling more qubits.
0: So, Virginia, this is kind of the work that you and Claire are doing, right, is that you're actually taking a look, once you actually start to get these qubits and you get results out of these qubits, you actually work on, well, okay, can we trust these results? How does, the, how does that work? How do you know whether you can trust the results you're getting from a quantum computer?
2: So that's a very, very interesting philosophical question. Uh, And many people have been thinking about this very hard. In our case, for the work that Claire and I are doing, uh, at the moment we are dealing with very few qubits where the outcomes are actually simulatable by a classical computer. And what, what we're trying to do is not so much verifying outcomes. We're trying to make a few qubits work really, really reliable. So we're trying to push their coherence times to make them work longer, to make them work better. We're trying to make the operations, the gates that Claire was mentioning, as robust as possible.
0: So if we're talking about the fact that you can keep a single qubit in your lab going for a couple of minutes and then you start to add more and the machine starts to break itself down, you're trying to add features to it that would sort of keep the machine from exploding until you've done more work on it.
2: Yes, that's correct. That's 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 a nice summary.
0: <laughs> well, this is, this is you're like the anti bomb squad, right? Yeah, you know, the anti bomb squad in, in quantum computing. All right. So, does that then mean that this is a feature that all quantum computers are going to need? Claire, are we going to need these kinds of features in all of them in order to make sure that they can work long enough that we can do something with them before they self
1: destruct? Yes, absolutely. Yes, because no matter how, how well you engineer your environment, your laboratory, no matter how much you take out all that external noise which might be coming in, like magnetic fields or temperature, you can't. There's always going to be something left over. And even if that error in your gate is a percent of a percent of a percent, like 0.00001%, great, that's a really good gate. But if you then want to do a million of those in the algorithm, it adds up. It adds up fast. (laughs) Right,
0: and so what you get to is that if you're if you're doing something, if you're using a qubit a million times, and there's a tiny little bit of error in it a million times, that adds up. Or if you have a whole bunch of them, then it really starts to multiply. So what you can see then is that a small mistake, repeated on millions of times, and computers do the same functions millions of times. Our smartphones do the same functions billions of times a second. So you can see that these little mistakes would add up very quickly. So you're really trying then to, to take that, mis- that error level, that mistake, Virginia, and bring it down. Can, you, can, can we ever bring it down to zero? Or can you just get it to a point where it's low enough that people can go, okay, we'll, we can trust it if we do it a million times, but maybe not if we do it a billion times
2: it's not realistic that we can ever bring it down to zero and in fact classical computers also have non-zero error rates they just need to be small enough in order for us to be able to use them so that's what we're working towards
0: okay so this is something then that is going to be fundamental in other words when we have quantum computers and and i should ask and please both of you bring in on this I've been to your lab. It's beautiful. It's very sort of pristine and clear. It has a special door because you can't have the wash of air that comes from a door that would normally swing shut because that would upset all of the perfect quantumness in the lab. But I can't imagine folks having that on their smartphone. I can't imagine how we go from this thing that you have in a lab to something that shows up in a more commercial or even even a more scientific context how do we get from where we are today to there
2: it's not likely that people will ever have quantum computers on their smartphone or even at home in the next in the next couple of centuries the near future for quantum computing will probably be cloud based so companies build quantum computers and then offer computing time to other companies
0: so the same way that you know Google has a cloud or Facebook has a cloud or IBM has a cloud or Microsoft has a cloud and you can put your files up there or you can run a program on it, you expect that at some point I'll be able to go, oh, look, there's my quantum computer and I can do it and because it's running in, in Google's really clean room or Amazon's really clean room where they can keep everything and they can have the fancy doors that prevent the decoherence from happening.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And um, because that sounded very hypothetical, uh, I just wanted to say that there already is a quantum computer in the cloud that everybody can access, and that's from IBM. It's called the IBM Quantum Experience. They have 5 and 20 qubit chips which everybody can access and run quantum algorithms on.
0: All right. So we're talking about a, a, a cloud-based quantum computer. That's really amazing. Can we do anything really interesting with these cloud-based quantum computers yet?
2: So there, um, there aren't many qubits on those yet. And they're also, they're also not very good qubits.
0: Because presumably they aren't taking advantage of all the work that you and Claire are doing yet.
2: Well, I wouldn't presume to say any such thing. <laughs> Well, mostly because it's it's just really hard.
0: It's really hard, and it's also quite early days in this.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, but everybody can access this five-qubit quantum computer and and just play with it. So there have been a couple of people who, for instance, invented some quantum games on on that machine. It's it's more of an educational resource at the moment, and also just a demonstration.
0: And and one of the things I actually did see when I was doing the research for this episode is that there is a Programming library, for those uh, listeners who do programming, there's a programming language called Python, which I use a lot because it's quite fun, quite easy to learn. And someone did a quantum computing package for it so that you can write programs in this very nice, easy-to-use language that we teach kids these days and give them access to quantum computing. So in some ways, I guess we're at the beginning, even if all of this is, is only still very creaky, right? Okay, clear eventually, because of your work, because of Virginia's work, because we're just getting better at this, we will start to have these longer strings of qubits. And we will start to be able to do more sophisticated programs. And you, you talked about Shor's algorithm, but it's this general class of being able to solve problems that classical computers can't solve because in order to factor large numbers and an encryption that we use when we're talking to the bank or doing most most of the stuff on the web is based on this idea that we can use these large numbers and no no one could peek in, guess these numbers, you can't use a computer to crack these numbers. All of a sudden, at some point, we're going to get a computer, at least one, and it might even be in the cloud, that can break all of the ways that we use to secure all of our e-commerce. What happens at that point?
1: Well, it's a a very, very good question and one which a lot of people and businesses are concerned with. In fact, just recently, IBM's Institute for Business Values put out a report looking at the dangers of quantum computing on cryptography and cybersecurity and what's that going to look like for businesses in the next 20 years, including some strategies to make sure that all of their data is secure. And this includes the fact that there is, There are some sorts of encryption like RSA, which can be broken by Shor's algorithm, which they do recommend that we start moving away from, because even if this is 20, 30 years away, these are big, we're talking about big companies where change happens very, very slowly, so we should really start moving away from it. And then there are other sorts of encryptions which are much more secure and are yet to be shown that quantum can hurt them, but maybe... Quantum could speed up how quickly they could be broken. So you just need to make all of your encryption keys a little bit longer, maybe make them twice as long or something.
0: So really it's around preparing for the future and keeping your options open so that if you're a bank or a defence department or anyone who is really dependent on security, then these are the kinds of things that you have to keep in mind now because of the work the two of you are doing. (laughs) All right, Virginia. Claire, you are still young in your careers. You're about to get your doctorates. You will still be working in a billion seconds 2050. You will be probably at the pinnacles of your careers in a field that will have grown up around you. What kinds of things will we see and what kinds of projects do you suspect we will be working on in a billion seconds? Virginia.
2: So... With the development of quantum computers, it's very likely that we'll scale up to more and more qubits over the next, um, the next couple of years, which allows us to look at interesting problems. Um, so we were talking about Shor's algorithm and encryption, but that's only one thing that quantum, qu- quantum computers can do. Uh, another thing that's going to be very interesting is um, quantum simulation, which will allow us to simulate the dynamics of, uh, of systems on the small scale, like, for instance, um, molecules. It will allow us to understand how, how, how molecule bindings are formed. Um, and which, this is a big
0: deal because I know that one of the things computers have trouble with right now is simulating how our DNA works and how our, our protein works inside of our cells because there's too much to do. And that apparently when you get a quantum simulation, if you're going to do discover a new drug or find a cure for cancer or whatever, that a quantum computer could could conceivably make that much more straightforward.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Claire, what do you expect you're gonna be working on in a lab?
1: Well, I I think quantum computing is really it's really starting to speed up. It's a very, very exciting time. And I hope I'm still working in quantum computing in some way, shape, or form. And I think that quantum physicists at the moment, we can't even begin to imagine what sorts of things we're gonna do. I am very excited to see the developments with molecular simulations and analysis because some of the most excited people I've ever met for a quantum computer are chemists and biologists, not physicists, because chemists and biologists are sitting there on their supercomputers running really complex and long things and making so many approximations. And if they had a quantum computer, the effect would be absolutely phenomenal. The speed up in, as you said, drug development, that can't be possibly understated speeding up something which might take 10 years to get to market now to less than one or something.
0: So bringing in the timeline from something that could take a billion seconds to maybe something that only takes a million. Virginia, Clear, thank you very much for being on the next billion seconds. Thank, thank you so much, Mark. One of the many things that is so interesting about quantum computing is that the field, as Claire said, it's exploding right now. And it's exploding with innovation and it's exploding with weirdness. An article that I recently read and which we'll link to on the website talks about how we might be using quantum computers in a few years to go back in time, sort of. Physicists have known for about 100 years that time flows in one direction. It flows forward, but they haven't been able to develop any reason why that should be so. Physics doesn't actually require that time flows either forward or backwards. So what's going on there? Well, physicists have just learned that at the quantum level, it's as easy to reverse the arrow of time as it is to let it spin forward. The things that are hard to do up here in the classical world, they appear to be really easy to manage in the quantum universe. Just hit rewind on the flow of time. And while I doubt that discovery will lead to the creation of a time machine, who knows what researchers like Claire Edmonds and Virginia Frey might make of this delightful weirdness over the next billion seconds. We'll be linking to both Claire and Virginia's details, including information about the Quantum Control Lab at the University of Sydney and all of the articles that they mentioned, and their new startup called Q-Control. So be sure to look for that on our new website at nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation got you thinking weird? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page or leave a comment on our website. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you on a future episode. On the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we're bringing Rob Tursik back into the studio. His thesis about how media has been vaporized by the Internet giants has some chilling implications, not just for the future of news, but for the future of how we see the world. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.